Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. We're picking up where we left off on this concept of worship and specifically legacy, a legacy principle that we want to draw out of the Psalms. For those of you who may be relatively new to this series, we're talking about building legacy principles. That is, what do we want our children and our grandchildren to learn better and to practice better than we did? And when we talk about legacy, we're not necessarily talking about old people. In other words, those who are my age or more. We're talking about those who understand these principles even as young people to raise a whole generation that would understand that there are certain key, uncompromisable biblical principles with which we must raise our families and conduct our lives. Psalm 95 is one of those great psalms that speaks of this principle. Now, let me see if I can give you the principle, and then let's take a look at what we've already said and continue into some new material this morning. I want my children and I want my grandchildren to learn that the worship of God must never be approached casually, and that true worship is the non-negotiable essence of their spiritual development and their relationship to God. Worship must never be approached casually. One thing is clear as we study all of the Old Testament passages, God takes very seriously worship, not for his benefit, but for our benefit, so that we might approach him the right way. Psalm 95 says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel together before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, I do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at the day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Now, in our study of this psalm, we tried to point out certain things about not only our relationship to God, but our relationship to each other what is proper and what is improper worship, keeping in mind that we are not focusing, nor does the scripture focus on worship styles. It 
focuses more on the heart attitude and how that heart approaches God's throne of grace. We talked about the relationship between God and the one who worships him. And that worship done in a wrong or errant way grieves the heart and the mind of God. Now, when we speak of God grieving, we're not talking about him throwing up his hands in disgust, but we're recognizing that worship is for our benefit. You and I, when we come together, are worshiping God at his highest for our benefit, not for his. Because you see, then God, then and only God, can give us nothing higher than himself. There is nothing higher than God. So God in our worship is giving us himself. There is nothing higher for God to give. So there is great blessing we are to receive in the worship of God. So it must not, it cannot be approached casually. In fact, as, he, as we talked about that particular psalm, when the people tested God at Meribah and Massa, where there was great division and great discord in their worship, God's punishment to them, if you will, his chastisement was that they died in the desert of their own making. And so when you study a psalm like Psalm 95, you want to be very, very careful when you begin to apply it to you and to your families. When God gives us such strong warning that there's a right way and a wrong way to approach him, there's a right way and a wrong way to come into his presence. There's a right way and a wrong way to know that when you leave this place today, you have worshiped God the right way. That God warns us of chastisement if we are to approach him in an ungodly or unscriptural way. So one of the things that I like to do as a pastor is I like to try to make this as practical as we possibly can. I am not saying for one minute that these seven preparatory steps to worship that I've outlined are exhaustive. There are certainly other things you can do besides this in order to prepare yourself to worship God the right way. What I've tried to do is collect the core elements of worship. What is worship? How do you define a worship service? When congregations come together, what are the basic elements that, if absent, make that worship service lacking or faulty? Well, at the heart of worship is the idea of hearing and coming under the tutelage of the word. There is nothing you will read anywhere in scripture that removes the preaching of the word from being central in the worship of God. It is when God's people gather around his word, his word spoken, his word sung, his word preached, his word prayed, where we hear what God has to say. That's what the word is. And so when Old Testament saints came together to worship, they brought out the scriptures. They opened the word. They wanted to see what the prophets said, what the historical books said, what the Psalms said. And they came together to proclaim to each other the living word. They do so in the context of praise. Praise is an integral part of what we do in worship. Now, praise involves several things. Praise involves the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Praise involves uh, the essence of confession, where we are confessing to God our sins and receiving from him the cleansing that only he can give. 
So when we come together to praise him, we come to sing, we come to pray. Another core element of a worship service is the idea of confession. We come in order to repent of sin, to restore our broken relationship or to have God restore our broken relationship to him. We come to receive the sacraments, to do so in remembrance of Christ, not only in the covenantal sense of, pre of presenting these children in the sacrament of baptism, but coming together as a corporate body periodically to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to look back upon his death, his burial, his resurrection, to feed on Christ in our hearts with faith today and to look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when we will celebrate in fact and not in mere symbol the bread of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when we talk about worship, we're talking about core elements, preaching, praising, praying, confessing, repenting, the celebration of the sacraments. These are the fundamental core elements of what makes for a worship service. Now, when these elements are present, then at least we have the skeleton in place to worship God the right way. When these elements are missing, then we have missing ingredients that we need to do in a better way. Now, what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to show you that there are certain things that you can do, practical things that you can do to prepare for all of these elements to prepare yourself to worship God in the context of these core elements. Now, there are certainly more than seven. These seven are not exhaustive, but these seven ought to get you moving in the right direction. Now, the first thing I talked about last week was that we are to seek to resolve all known conflicts with anyone to the degree that it depends upon you. We can't come into worship with unresolved conflicts or conflicts that we basically say we're not going to resolve. And so I suggested to you that you need to call the person with whom you have the conflict and seek forgiveness for any part that you may have had in the conflict, especially if that person is a believer. Because to bring conflict into the context of worship is to bring your sin pattern into the rest of the body. So we must come to resolve issues that may be conflicts with other brothers and sisters. I talked to you about meditating on Matthew chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 12 and Romans chapter 19. So we must come confessing our sins to each other, seeking forgiveness from each other so that the body of Christ may not have any leaven in it. Now, one of the things I think is very, very important is to understand that it's not always possible to resolve a conflict with someone. We know that. We understand that. There are times when you are more than willing to seek forgiveness and more than willing to seek restoration and the other person is not. I know that. But you must do so within every ounce of your power to ensure that you have done everything you possibly can do to get your heart right before God. And by the way, uh, in talking to a few of you after I delivered that particular message, I heard some attitudes, some attitudes that I didn't really like to hear from a few people who basically said, you know what, I tried. I did everything I knew how to do. 
And that person just isn't willing. Now, I understand, I just said that, that that happens sometimes where you have people who are unwilling to resolve. But there's also a mindset in us when someone is unwilling to resolve an issue that basically says, I give up. I give up. Now, that's an attitude. You're basically saying at this point, I'm not looking for any further open doors. I've written that person off. And you're saying to yourself, there is absolutely no further room in your life for any humility. There's no servanthood. There's no mercy to be extended. You tried. They didn't listen. X marks the spot. They are now out of my life. That is not what I talk about. That is not what I mean when I talk about resolving conflicts. You may get to a point where there's nothing further you can do. And boy, I'm going to maximize this statement. I don't want this to come out as though it's a weak statement. There's nothing some of you can do except to pray. We can't minimize that prayer. That's important that you need to ask God, open doors, open real doors, Lord, so that I might be able to make another attempt to soften the blow. Maybe something will happen in their lives where I can show them the spirit of humility because I really want that conflict resolved. Now, I'm not saying you have to be best buddies with the person with whom you have the conflict, but you cannot have the attitude that says, I tried, it didn't work, I give up, there's no further room for me to maneuver. So resolve conflict, step number one. Secondly, we talked about preparing an offering. Now, specifically, I said what you need to do is make out a check for 10% of your gross income. And then you need to determine, does that constitute a personal sacrifice? You need to ask God to discern the wisdom of how you have been spending the 90% that remains. Specifically, does that 90% that remains and how you spend it reflect an absolute commitment to build the kingdom of God? Or does it represent a commitment to build your own portfolio? Now, there's nothing wrong with building your portfolio. There is nothing wrong with good investing. There is nothing wrong with uh, planning for your retirement. But there is everything wrong with viewing your money in the context of what does it do for me? Rather than how can I use the money that God's given me to advance his kingdom? And so when you sit down and you figure out what must I give to the work of the ministry, what must I give to the cause of Christ, then I suggest that you tear up the first check, if necessary, and rewrite a new one. Because if it doesn't represent a personal sacrifice, if it simply represents something that is very easy for you to do, then you have to question whether or not it is the proper offering to give. Meditate, if you will, on Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10, and 2 Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. There you will find that the tithe is the starting core principle of giving. The tithe is the starting core principle of giving. I like to tell you, and I hope you understand this, especially as I've been writing the history of the church over the past few weeks, our church has a legacy of giving. There are others who sacrificially gave for you to have the privilege of sitting where you are. There are others who have gone on before you who have sacrificed a great amount of money, invested a significant amount of money to build the structures that we have now. So that as we stand here today, 
relatively speaking, we have a very small debt. And when you look at the structures and the land that God has given us and the programs and the ministries, it didn't just happen. Lots of people who came years before you celebrated their faith by giving sacrificially to this work. I will never forget some of the stories that were told right from this pulpit when we went into our capital funds campaign years ago to build the two wings on the north and the south end. I will never forget some of the stories of people who gave, uh, giving up lunches, giving up uh, meals after church, giving up great possessions. One person sold his boat, his baby, his toy, and he realized that that is exactly what it was. It was a toy, and he was willing to give that up even though it was like grasping it out of his hands, like pulling it out of his hands, he knew that he needed to give that up to the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting that you sell your boats and give your money to the church. What I am suggesting that in each and every one of these different cases, they prayed it through and they said, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to give? So we start with the tithe. And we realize as we look back that others have brought us to the point where we are. And then we realize that as you give today, you are helping to build the legacy for the kids that are coming up behind us who will own this church in the years to come. Somebody will have sacrificed for them. Somebody will have brought them to, that, to the point where they will be 20 years from now, just as others 20 years ago sacrificed to bring you where you are today. Giving, we recognize in 2 Corinthians, needs to be according to our potential. And it's a privilege. It's not an obligation. For you see, giving must flow out of a holy consecration. We must be willing to give because our hearts are right. And who is our model? Christ. Christ is our model of self-sacrifice. It is Christ we look to as the one who supremely gave all that he could give. So when we talk about giving in our church, we talk about different income levels. We talk about people in our congregation who are well up into six figures. And we talk about others who are on welfare. We have everybody in between along that spectrum. There's everybody in between. We're not talking about equal gifts. We're talking about equal sacrifice. It's not the amount that matters. It's whether or not there is indeed sacrifice. And so we talk about grace and grace giving, and it extends well beyond the tithe. Grace giving is not compulsive giving. We do not give because we have to. We give because it's a privilege and it's an act of worship. So resolve the conflicts, determine what your gifts are going to be. Then thirdly, confess your personal and secret sins to God. Now it's starting to get tough. It's easy to write out a check. But now you have to start being honest with yourself. Confess your personal sins and secrets to God. Ask him to, when you come in here, to guide you in corporate worship so that you might discern the necessary steps of corrective action you must take to progress in personal holiness. In other words, you are praying proactively. You are asking God to help you listen aggressively. The design here is for change. We don't want to leave the building the same way we came in. We don't want to come in here 
and pull the wool over God's eyes, putting that in quotes, as though God doesn't know what our secret sins are. He doesn't know the thoughts that you harbor. He wasn't around when you said the things that you said. Somehow or another, he missed that. He was away. He was on duty somewhere. And somehow or another, we reason that the secret sins that we have, although they are secret to others, that somehow or another, they're also secret to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. God knows your heart when you walk in here. He knows how you have rationalized, how you and I have rationalized certain behaviors and called wrong right. He knows what we've done. He knows the sin patterns we've committed. He knows what we do in secret. He knows what's going on behind closed doors. He knows what your marriage really looks like. He knows what you are really doing in contrast to what your parents think you're doing. He knows what you really are like and not just the image you want others to believe. Somehow or another, God was in tune with the conversations of gossip that took place, maybe even this morning, the ridicule the caustic words. And so we talk about very specific things to do. List the sins of the tongue you struggle with. What sins of the tongue are there? When God speaks in the commandments about bearing false witness, there's, there's a gazillion ways in which we bear false witness. When we injure another's character, when we say things that hurt and we know we're hurtful in the things that we say, sometimes the things that we say with the tongue aren't really the things we say, but how we say them. The words may be right, but the attitude of the heart may be wrong. So we need to come before God before we come here and we say, Lord, who did I hurt this week with my tongue? What words did I speak that I shouldn't have spoken? What joke did I tell? That was simply wrong. By the way, did you know that in the book of Ephesians, it tells you that there is not to be even a hint of immoral talk on your lips. Not even the hint, NIV calls it, of coarse jokes. Not even the hint of coarse, rash, irresponsible, immoral talk. So I ask you, when you come in here today, when we ask for times of confession, when we say, let's confess our sins before God, your first response should be, you know what? I already did. I already prepared my heart to do so. Now I can come and I can thank God for the fact that 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. List the sins of the mind that you struggle with, your thought life, your thought life. I know we struggle. I can tell you I struggle. The thought life is a very hard thing to control. That's why Paul says, I bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. In other words, he recognizes that he really can't serve his God when his mind is cluttered. 
when his mind is cluttered with the wrong things, what have you been thinking about? What do you feed your mind with? What are your thoughts? What does your thought life look like? I always like to tell you that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just put a, uh, a spiritual uh, uh, DVD player into your brain and then just record everything that takes place inside, not the things you say, the things you look at, etc., but what's in here? What are you thinking? And then when you come to church on Sunday morning, we say, you know what? We're going to pick one of you out and play back your DVD this past week. Up on the screen for everybody to see. You know how many people would be ducking for cover? I know I would. And yet somehow or another we have reason that God doesn't know what's in our minds. For you see, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is, or so he becomes, or so he acts. So you not only confess the sins of the tongue and the sins of the mind, but you list the sins also that you have actively committed. Those are easy to figure out. The active sins are the ones that you know you can rightfully place before God and say, this is what I know that I did this past week, this morning, this last hour, the last five minutes. I came in, sometimes I like to go into the congregation during a worship service and just see it from your angle, because usually I'm sitting up here. But just to see it from your perspective, and just to sit where you're sitting and just to feel what you're feeling. And I don't know why, but for some reason last week, I decided that I wanted to watch the men in the church and how you worship. And I could see the struggles that many of you guys were having, especially when it came to the women who walked past you. Even here in the context of worship, how difficult it was for you to stay focused. Those things in your heart, those are active things that the thing that's in the heart eventually comes out and we actively begin to pursue things that are offensive to God. We need to confess that because you see, when we come to worship, somebody else comes here to meet you. And that somebody else that comes here to meet you is your enemy. Your enemy is here whispering in one ear while the Spirit of God is whispering in the other ear. You hear these conflicting messages. We can't focus when we pray. We can't focus when we're hearing the word. We can't stay tuned in to what God is telling us right now. Some of your minds are wondering, and I can say it. Why? Because it takes work. There's significant energy required when we actively, actively begin to confess the sins that we know for sure we have committed. And then we need to meditate upon the claim and promises of 1 John 1.9. You know, I am so glad 1 John 1.9 is in the Bible. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you need to keep something in mind when you read 1 John 1, 9. He's talking to Christians. The message is to believers. 
Well, now, wait a minute, pastor. I thought when I came to Christ, all of my sins were already forgiven. Why must I now confess them? I thought I only had to confess them once. Then you've missed the message of scripture. Our salvation is secured because when Christ died on the cross, all of your sins were future to him. So when he died on the cross for your sins, he died for every sin you've ever committed, you are committing today, or you ever will commit tomorrow. That's not the point of 1 John 1.9. The word confess in 1 John 1.9, that if we confess our sins, that word confess means to agree. See, God wants us to agree with him when we fail. He wants us to keep on agreeing. That's why it's in a present tense. He wants us to keep on agreeing. It's a moment by moment, step by step, not in order to gain our salvation back. Because otherwise we would be saved today and lost tomorrow and saved the next day and lost the next day, etc. Because if we continually lose our salvation because of sin, then we continually crucify Christ over and over again. Hebrews 6 tells us. But what God wants us to do is to confess, to agree with him. In other words, to get on the same page by calling evil, evil. And quitting the rationalization of calling evil right. Now, why does God want us to do that? So that he could say, aha, I won, you lose. Or is God's intent here fellowship with the Spirit that you can't have fellowship with His Spirit with unconfessed sin in your life? You can still be saved, but your fellowship may be broken and thus the power of knowing Christ is broken. That's why, for example, in Peter, he speaks of the fact that men's prayer lives can be hindered if they are failing to treat their wives the right way. And by the way, I don't believe that passage only implies that men are to treat their wives the right way. I believe implied in that passage is the fact that women can have their prayer life hindered if they do not treat their husbands the right way. So God wants you to confess that marital sin. He wants you to confess the fact that maybe you're even sitting here today and your home is in disarray. And you are dishonoring Christ with your home because you're waiting for the other person to change. You're waiting for the other person to do the right thing. You're waiting for the other person to say they're sorry. You're waiting for the other person to, uh, to be forgiven. You're waiting for the other person to take the steps to correct the marriage. You're waiting for the other person. And thus our prayer lives are hindered. So God wants us to confess that which means we agree with you, God. This is what's going on. This is the dynamic that's going on. I agree with you. And now I lay hold of the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that you are a faithful God and just to forgive. Fourthly, you need to pray for those who will lead you in worship. You need to pray for those who will lead you in worship. You know, one of the most frustrating, yet at the same time encouraging, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but stay with me, you'll understand what I'm saying about, thing that happens to me is when I go and see a doctor. 
The most frustrating thing is when I go and I see a doctor, and, and, and I've done this in the past, and I know when I'm sitting there in front of him, he's not done his homework. Or I know he's not listening to me. I know he's already got his mind made up and he knows what direction he's going to go and he doesn't listen to the patient. I know he has so many patients to see and that I've been granted 10 minutes, if that, of his time. And so that's a very frustrating thing. It's also a wonderful thing and an encouraging thing when I walk into the office and the doctor says, well, now let's talk about what happened the last time you were here and what you did with that along the way. Because I told you to do this, 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 and this. Now let's talk about whether or not you did it. Obviously, the man read my chart. And he knows what he told me to do. He's prepared to meet me. He's prepared to do what he's been asked to do and what he's being paid to do to medically minister to me. I'm thankful that I have doctors that I know when I walk into the office. They know me inside and out, and they've done their homework. And so I pray for them in that regard, because my health's at stake. I'm putting my life in certain people's hands. My life is at stake. I always pray for the pilot of an airline that I'm on. I've never met the guy, but I want to know he's not drunk. I want to know that he's had a good night's sleep. I want to know that he's been prepared, that he's got his mind tuned in, that my safety is at stake. So we pray for these people. Do you pray for those who minister to your soul on Sunday mornings? Do you pray for those, for example, who minister to your children? If you have children, you need to pray for those who will teach and care for those children. Pray that somehow they will sow the seeds of the gospel message that will root and sprout in the years to come. Some of the greatest influences that children have are their teachers. Teachers in school, teachers in public schools, teachers in private schools, teachers who teach at home, teachers who teach in Christian schools, and teachers who every week minister the gospel to your children. Now, what you need to pray for is that that person's prepared. That it didn't get up on Saturday night and say, you know what, I forgot to prepare my lesson today. You need to pray for the teachers. You need to pray for the children, the ones who minister to your babies, to your little ones. You need to pray before you come to worship, that God would give them extra wisdom beyond themselves, that something they say that day will impact just your child the right way. If you have no children, you need to pray for those who do. I like to encourage you, if you have no children, to adopt specific children that you're going to pray for. Friends, family members who also have children that are being ministered to, you become their prayer partner if you have none. And pray specifically that God would bring that little one to Christ, that God would teach that little one something from the scriptures. You would be amazed at the little notes that kids give me after sermons are preached of how much they're getting. 
Parents, I, one, one family showed me something last week I thought was just amazing. There are certain biblical words, certain theological words like sin, salvation, Christ, resurrection. It's like a whole page long, two columns, left-hand side, right-hand side, goes from top to bottom. And their children are taught in the worship service that they are to mark down every time they hear one of those words in the sermon. And there's, I don't know, maybe... 75 words on that page. Christological words, Christ-centered words. Check down every time you hear the pastor say that word. I think it's a great tool because I think at that point the parent has an opportunity to at least look on a piece of paper and reason to themselves, this is what my child heard. And I can now talk about that. I can now make that the topic of discussion. So you need to pray for those who are ministering to your children, you need to pray for those whether you have them or not. You need to pray for God's power on the worship leaders. You need to pray for the choir. Pray that they have no pride. You know, a good voice can give you a lot of pride. Pray for the instrumentalist, that when they have their little thing up here, when they're performing, and, and, and maybe when uh, the, the part comes in the song where they are where they are doing a solo, pray that they would honor God with it, that they would not be showing off their talents. Because I can tell you right now, in the performance mindset, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to receive the accolades of people and deflect that back to the glory of God. Some of us, you know what we do when we receive those accolades? We pat ourselves on the back and we reason that we deserve them. So you need to pray for a spirit of humility in those who lead you in worship. You need to ask God to humble them so that there would be no spirit of pride or sense of the flesh. Pray for the worship leader as he leads the service. Whoever that worship leader is, do you know how hard it is to lead a worship service? Some of you men are learning when we've asked you to pray. You think it's an easy thing to do. You're all prepared. You walk up here, you turn around, and you see all these faces looking at you, and suddenly you realize this is big business. This is important business. Well, those of us who do this every week realize you've given us your time. You've come here expecting something. You've come here expecting that we're prepared. So you need to pray for those who lead the worship. You need to pray for me. I unapologetically tell you that I need you to pray that the word and the power of God's word would somehow directly impact you directly. Somehow specifically that the word of God would penetrate your heart. It is amazing to me how often I hear people say something like this to me. Pastor, when you said, and then they Da, 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 da. God spoke to my heart in such a way that I did da, 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 da. And I'll just stand there and look at him and smile. And I don't remember saying that. And I'm going to tell you something. There are times when I didn't say that. But that's what they heard me say because that's what God wanted them to hear. So when there's the preaching of the word, sometimes what I intend for you to hear is completely different than what God actually instructs you to hear. 
That's why oftentimes you'll hear me say, Lord, please remove me of anything that will not glorify you. May their ears be blocked from hearing those things that are incorrect. And it, it gives me chills up and down my spine when people come and they tell me, such and such happened. The Spirit of God spoke to me in such and such a way. And, and, and I look at that and I say, I didn't do that. I didn't say that. And you want to know why those things happen? Because people pray for me. They pray for the one who ministers the word. They pray specifically for the one who ministers the word. I think you need to meditate before you come here on Hebrews 13, 7. On 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 9. These ought to be passages that you memorize. I need to meditate on the warnings of Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. All who, of you who hold leadership roles need to meditate on the warnings of Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. I mean, Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders. By the way, that's not a one-time action. That also is a present verb. Keep on remembering your leaders. Who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you know what that makes me feel like? When God is instructing the church for you to imitate my faith and my life? That's why I need to read Ezekiel chapter 34, where it warns of shepherds who mislead. Shepherds who do not properly guide. There is a double accountability that God is going to lay on us for wrongly leading you astray. If our lives do not reflect what we preach, then we have nothing for you to imitate. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 9 says, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for the praise of men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul saying it was a joy to minister to you. Yet in 2 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 11, where he outlines his catalog of sufferings, he puts the care of the church in there with beatings and flagellations and everything else. So on the one hand, it is a wonderful experience to minister to the flock. But on the other hand, we vicariously suffer for every single one of you. And over the course of many years, that takes its toll. So you need to pray for the leaders who minister to you. Otherwise, I'm going to give you 10 minutes and I'm not going to know your name and I'm not going to care about your need because all I'm going to worry about is the next person I have to talk to and could care less about whether or not you get healed. That is why it is important for you to pray for those who lead you in worship. 
Well, we're going to have to stop there for now. We'll pick this up and finish it next week when we're together. Hopefully, you're learning something. Hopefully, you're preparing something. One lady last week walked into the um, Easter service, and I was standing outside as, uh, just watching people coming in and out, greeting as many as I could. And uh, one lady came in. She grabbed me by the hand. She said, I want you to know I'm prepared. And I said, I'm glad you're prepared. And you know, my prayer for her was that God would give her the unexpected and not the expected, that God would do above the ordinary, that he would do extraordinary things in your midst. I can't even begin to fathom what this church will be like if all of us get this, if all of us regularly and systematically, just as we brush our teeth and eat food, hopefully you brush your teeth, and eat food, or clean your teeth, or put them in a jar, whatever else you do. <laughs> I hope that you, as normally as you care for the physical needs, the, main, the mundane needs of your body, that you would prepare for worship in a God-honoring way, so that when you come in here, you're loaded for bear. You're like a racehorse, and you're just waiting at the gate to enter the race. You're waiting for the bell to ring, and you're ready to go because the Spirit of God, I guarantee you, every week when you come in here, is ready to go. He's ready to minister to you extraordinarily above and beyond what you thought you were going to get when you came here. But he's not going to give it to you. If you're not prepared, he'll move on to somebody else who is, and you'll miss the blessing. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you and we praise you for worship, for this wonderful privilege that you've given us, for the awesome responsibility that you've given us, Lord, to worship you in a spirit of uh, proactiveness, where we are aggressively listening, attentively hearing your voice and desiring to know you and the power of your resurrection. Bless and encourage these wonderful people, Lord, who come every week to hear your word. Bless our folks who are watching this program, this, this, this uh, TV program as it goes out, and bless those who are watching even now live uh, down in Dover, Lord. We pray that these Wonderful people there would be blessed and encouraged as they stand and worship with us. And now may the grace of God, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.